Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, our colleagues Michelle Rendells and Tim Leonard talk about a story they worked on about a pilot program that lets state employees bring their babies into the office. After that, Jenny Jackson with Nevada State Parks chats about a new program that allows Nevadans with a library card to check out passes to get into state parks for free. And at the end of the show, I sit down with Ted Kay with the North American Vexillological Association, try saying that three times fast, to talk about the Reno flag coming in second place in their new flag survey. Well, I am here with assistant editor Michelle Rendells, who also helps edit the podcast with me, and visual content editor who also helps out with the podcast, even though it's not quite visual all the time, Tim Leonard. Hello, guys. Welcome. Hey, Joey. How's it going? Thanks for having us. Yeah. And so the two of you are here talking with me today because the three of us all worked on a story together on this new pilot program that the state is doing on bringing your children to work with you to, you know, to help working parents. And you guys are also both working parents yourself. Uh, Tim, you have a two-year-old and Michelle, you have a five-month-old. Yes, So, Michelle, why don't you explain a little bit about what this pilot program is and how it's working? Yeah, so this is called the Infant to Work Pilot Program. The treasurer's office is basically allowing workers who have babies to bring them in for the first six months of their life and just to be right by their side while they're doing their day-to-day tasks. So they have the first person in the office that's taken advantage of it, a woman named Itzel Fausto, who we interviewed. And she's got a two-month-old that is in a stroller right next to her desk, like pretty much all day, sometimes on her playmat, sometimes going making runs around to mailboxes and doing other tasks with her, sometimes hanging out in a baby wrap. So yeah, basically shadowing mom all day. More cards. Oh no, what happened? I didn't forget. (laughs) I didn't forget. Yeah. And so, you know, the three of us went to the treasurer's office and saw Itzel with her baby Diamond. It was very cute. And it's literally just having the baby at work. So, you know, sometimes Itzel has to, you know, put up a sign that's like, you know, breastfeeding in progress. Please leave this door closed and stuff like that. It's been hard to find somewhere in here that I can breastfeed. So at moments, I'll I'll close the door and just like put a sign you know, mm. breastfeeding or pumping in progress. And everyone's been pretty good about not interrupting. <laughs> because there's no lactation rooms actually in the Capitol right now. Is this kind of like how it's going to be working moving forward? You know, how are they looking to like work this into state workers, you know, through the rest of the state? Well, it sounds like there's actually some other agencies that might have already been starting this type of work. But, you know, it's really a workaround because they don't have specific paid maternity or paternity leave at the state. So a lot of folks that I talk to that have a new baby, what they're doing is first using up their sick time. And then if they have any other PTO, they use that up. And then they get kicked off into this unpaid, what's called FMLA, Family Medical Leave Act time. So you can take 12 weeks off of work, but you're not getting paid. So you kind of have to decide if that's going to be worth it for your family. You know, I asked treasurer Zach Conine if he's working on adjusting that so people can actually reliably take time off once they have a baby. And and he said he's not aware of specific legislation about that, but he has had some conversations about how they would afford that. I, I would assume they have to backfill when they miss people, when people are out on leave. And that's not always cheap. So unfortunately, it looks like there's no real movement towards a full-on paid maternity leave policy at the state. 
And for now, bringing babies to work might be the next best thing for people. We know that, you know, kind of the job uh, can be hard sometimes, right? Interacting with the public and, and working long hours. And so anything we can do to either retain or recruit new staff, we want to do. And in addition, you know, we, we learned through the listening tour just how much of a problem childcare is. When we were living up in Carson, you're, you're dealing with us now, I'm sure, like finding childcare in Carson is really hard. And if you can find it, it's really expensive. That's crazy that the state doesn't have a maternity or paternity leave policy. Is that is that statewide? Do different offices have different policies that they can implement? Or is this pretty much, you know, like a blanket? There's no there's no maternity paternity leave policies at the moment. It's sort of a money issue that they don't have the leeway to, you know, suddenly implement a large scale paid maternity leave program. Um, and maybe it's just been that way for so long that it'd be hard to kind of make this change. But yeah, I think it's pretty typical in certain other jobs that people are not really getting paid maternity leave and sometimes have to be back to work and sometimes as little as a week in the case of itself. With her first child, she had to come back to work after five weeks because she simply hadn't worked a full year before that baby was born and therefore was not eligible for even this unpaid maternity leave called FMLA. Um, it was difficult. I did work for the state, but it was a different department. And um, at that time, I wasn't there long enough to qualify for FMLA. So I had to use my own time that I had built up annual and sick leave. And it only accumulated about uh, five weeks. So I took those five weeks and tried to do leave without pay um, just so I could get a little bit, you know, bonding time with him. But it was hard. I had to find a babysitter. So I reached out to family and friends and we were able to make arrangements that way. But it, it was it was hard. So this um, transition for me as far as trying out the program has just been wonderful. So, Tim, you were uh, doing a video for this piece. You know, what was it like, you know, watching Itzel and, and, and her child, you know, in the office? I found it kind of interesting because it's great to have your kids there, but it's also a little bit of a distraction, right? So, like, it's hard to focus on your work. So it was interesting to see how she's kind of managed to, like, balance entertaining Diamond and doing her tasks. It would be very hard for me to maintain a level of focus and pay attention to a newborn. So I was pretty impressed with her ability to do that. Yeah. So what's it like for you guys as parents now, you know, kind of working? You know, Tim, your kid's almost two, right? Yeah, about to turn two. So you've had a little bit more, you know, time. <laughs> yeah, but we had very, uh, when my daughter was born, we had a very similar situation where my wife worked. There was no paid maternity leave or anything like that. So it was kind of like a juggling FMLA and sick time and stuff like that. And then you get into this trap of like, well, you could put her in daycare as a newborn, but that's extremely expensive. And then you're just working. and It's not outpacing what you're spending on daycare. So like that first six months after a kid is born is a really uh, frantic time for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is definitely like trying to balance like your job and Who's going to look after your kid? Yeah. What about you, Michelle? So you, you're in a little bit of a different situation because you had your son while you were working at the ND, and we do have family paid leave here at the ND. Yes. Really grateful for that. And I think our workplace is more generous than a lot of other American workplaces. 
in that, you know, I got three months of paid maternity leave and my husband, who also works at the Indy, Riley Snyder, is getting three months of paternity leave. So we do have six months of leave. I feel spoiled kind of looking at the state workers, their situation, just because it is a wonderful experience to be able to spend dedicated time to your baby for the first six months. You know, becoming a first time mom was a really huge transition. Your sleep schedule is crazy. The baby is not on any sort of rhythm. You have no idea if a nap's going to happen or how long a nap is going to be or when it's going to happen in those early weeks. They also want you to breastfeed. And that is not an easy thing, especially if you're going back to work in a few weeks. I mean, it's just really unrealistic for some women to breastfeed for six months or a year. I mean, that is just, you know, the baby needs to eat every couple hours. It's, it's just almost impossible, I think, to keep that up if you are not with your baby all the time. So it, it was a huge adjustment. And not to mention, I think this really came out in the story, was that Itzel just wanted the time with her baby. And she didn't want to have to be away from the baby at daycare, you know, for eight to 10 hours a day in those very early months when that baby really kind of needs to be with mom. Oh, of course, yeah, because I'm strictly breastfeeding. Yeah, so it, it's been great to have her by my side still and still being able to just breastfeed only. It's amazing. So I'm trying to go as far as I can with that. So I think she just was happy to have that baby there to be able to see her milestones and her learning to do new things day by day. So I can really relate to that because I love having work from home situation here at the ND, being able to, even when I'm working, my baby <laughs> playing with Riley, my husband, you just kind of want as much time as you possibly can have in those early months. I feel like it's something that will definitely help encourage others. I'm hoping it'll help other agencies see that it is something that is possible. Michelle, Tim, thank you so much for being on the episode. And I'm sure you'll get to listen to you guys talk to yourselves uh, when you have to edit this piece in a little while. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Thanks Joey. Joey. Well, now we'll move from babies to something you can do with your kids when they get a little older, at least. Visiting state parks. That's right. Libraries and state parks are teaming up, and we'll get into more of that with Jenny Jackson with Nevada State Parks. But before we do, what is your favorite state park, Jacob? Uh, Joe, you know I don't go outside, so I'll tell you about my favorite <laughs> library, at least. That's the Paseo Verde Library. All my Paseo Verde heads know what I'm talking about. It's great. We love, we love the Paseo Verde Library. All right, well, on to the interview. Well, I am here with Jenny Jackson, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Hi. Yeah, so I am the Education and Information Officer for Nevada State Parks. Cool. And we are talking today about a partnership that you guys are doing right now with the Nevada State Library System about using your library card to go check out a pass, basically, to get into state parks for free, right? Right. It's a, a great really exciting new program that we recently launched. And it's a way to allow all Nevadans to get into all 27 state parks for free. So what was the impetus for, for starting this program? Well, it actually started with a call from Clark County Libraries. They contacted us last year and they wanted to partner with Nevada State Parks 
to offer their library patrons a way to check out park passes to Nevada State Parks. So this is something that we've been thinking about doing for a while. So when they reached out to us, we were immediately and fully on board with doing a program like this. And we decided that it was also as good a time as any to launch it statewide. So we went ahead and shipped out two day-use passes to every single public library in Nevada and uh, launched the program. Cool. So this isn't like you can't just use your library card and like show up at a state park and be like, look, I have a library card. Let me in for free. You actually have to go check it out from the library, right? Right. Yeah. I think there may have been some mixed messaging at the beginning of the launch of this program. And so we have had some people show up at a park hoping to get in for free with their library card. That's actually not the way the program works since we are partnering with libraries. This is kind of a way to make libraries a gateway to Nevada State Parks and to make that connection between your local library and exploring the outdoors. So you will need to check out a pass from your library and they're valid for a week. And again, you can use it at any Nevada State Park. In fact, you can use it during that week at as many parks as you like. And they're also good at museums and historic sites and recreation areas. The concept is that you need to check them out from your local public library. If you're going on like a week-long road trip across Nevada and, you know, you're going to like start in Vegas and end in Vegas and you want to do a loop, you know, you could go get one of these passes and hit a bunch of different state parks, right? And you get in for free. Absolutely. And that's what we would love for people to do. You know, we're always looking for ways to remove barriers and create more equitable access to nature. So we want as many people as possible to to go check out the pass and use it to either explore a park that's in your own backyard or venture out a little bit further. Maybe this will inspire and encourage people to go see something that maybe they wouldn't normally go visit. And we have some wonderful state parks. And I think that if this is inspiration to go see them, then it makes the whole program worth it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned our wonderful state parks. I was curious, do you have a, a favorite state parks or a couple favorite state parks? I have a couple favorite. Personally, I really love Wild Horse State Recreation Area, and that's about an hour north of Elko. It's a year-round park, so if you go in the summer, you can go boating and hiking, and it's the kind of a good base camp for off-road exploring. Hunters use it as their base camp, but it's equally and actually even arguably more beautiful in the winter. It is frigidly cold <laughs> and a gorgeous place for snowmobiling, and they do ice fishing derbies out there, and it's just really remote, and it's a really good I think Nevada, like the real Nevada experience. So that would be one of my favorites. I I really love Berlin Ichthyosaur State Park. I think most people love that would say that might be their favorite as well. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure every elementary school kid and you know went to a, a trip up there at some point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's one that you have to make a plan to go there. 
you're not just going to be driving by and but it's completely worth the detour. It's just like nothing you'll experience anywhere else. So that's another favorite. So how successful has this program been in getting people out to these parks and, and, and encouraging people also to, you know, go to the library to get these passes? Not that we didn't expect it to be successful. I think we knew it would be, but it has been wildly successful. The enthusiasm and the excitement has been wonderful. We've had visitors come in and tell us that they're making a point to visit, you know, multiple state parks while they have the pass. Knowing that that's something they might not have done without the pass is really exciting and rewarding. Clark County has told us that their library system has a pretty long wait list for passes. So people pretty quickly went and made a reservation to get a pass when it becomes available. So is it each county has a limited number of passes? Each library has two passes. Okay, so each library within the county has two passes. Yes. I know that Washoe has been extremely popular as well. Have you heard anything feedback-wise? Like, do you want to expand? Is it, What's the future of this program look like? Does it want to be expanded, or do you want to kind of try and keep it limited so that the state parks aren't overwhelmed? We are calling this a pilot program. We know that there may need to be some adjustments made. I don't know if that means that it will expand, but from the looks of things, it's been so popular that I, I could imagine that we would continue it. We may need to fine-tune some of the procedures, but those are really managed by the individual public libraries. So now one thing that goes along with this that we're working on is doing more programming with our interpretive rangers at public libraries. So that's something that I do think we will be expanding is doing more visits from park rangers and park interpreters to our local public libraries as a way to, you know, interact with visitors outside of the park. And if someone doesn't get one of these park passes, it doesn't mean they can't go to the park. So they can still go. They just have to pay a fee. Does that fee vary based on parks or is it a set fee or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, All of our parks are very reasonably priced. So it ranges from between five and ten dollars for an entrance fee. And you can also get an annual permit. We offer senior permits that are only $30 a year. We also have disabled veteran permits for $30. Like a lot of parks, you can get in for a $5 charge and that's per vehicle. So if you have a a family, it's just $5 for the whole family to get into a park. All right. Well, we'll end it there. Jenny, thank you so much for chatting with me today for the podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. Now that we've covered the landscape of Nevada, let's talk a little about the symbol of our states and cities, their flags. That's right. A few years ago, Reno redesigned their city flag, and recently it came in second to Tulsa, of all places, for best new city flag in the U.S. Well, no shade to the fine people of the state of Oklahoma, but as a native Nevadan, I will take Reno over Tulsa any day. But let's hear more from your interview about that now. All right. Well, I am here with Ted Kay, who is the secretary of the North American Vexillological Association. And I think I said that right. Is that right, Ted? That's right. And that's the last time you need to say vexillological. It's <laughs> NAVA for sure. N-A-V-A. Yes, the NAVA. 
So to start off, we're talking today because Reno came in second place for the best new city flag from the new American city flag survey that NAVA does. But before we get into that, I just want to know what is NAVA? Explain a little bit about the association. NAVA is an association of flag scholars and enthusiasts. We're a thousand members strong. We were founded in 1967 and we have members across the spectrum of flag interest from flag historians, academics, scholars, flag retailers, flag designers, flag collectors, flag conservators, anything to do with flags. All right. So before we get into, you know, Reno winning second place here, let's describe what the Reno city flag looks like for those listeners who haven't, who haven't seen it. Reno's new city flag has a dark blue field. And on that field is a large central disc. Think like the Japanese flag. In that disc, there are four components. There's a blue mountain with three peaks. Behind that mountain, above it, is gold sky. Across the middle of that, horizontally, is a light blue stripe. And at the bottom of it is a silver band. And then the only other element in the upper left-hand corner is an eight-pointed silver star, sort of a compass rose kind of star. It's quite small. That's the Reno city flag. Yeah. And so the flag was redesigned about five years ago, and I think people were really happy with it. I live here in Reno. Um, explain to me, you know, how you judged and why Reno only got second place. How come Reno's not in the first place spot? <laughs> what we did in late 2022 is we ran a survey asking people to rate the designs of 312 U.S. city flags that had been adopted since 2015. We asked our members and members of the public to give each of those flags a score from zero to 10, 10 being the best. Then we averaged the scores and mapped those onto grades, and we sorted them to see how they ranked. Now, I want to say, although Reno's got the second highest average rating, this is really a popularity contest. It's not an official or expert opinion. This is what, do, what does the crowd think? And the scores are very close together. So I would rather say Reno's in the top 10 than say it came in second. Mathematically, it did. But all that said, Reno's finished in the top group. And for that reason, and the fact that Reno residents are embracing this flag, that's a double win. Great design and great embrace of the flag. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing I wanted to talk about with flags is, can you explain the importance of having a flag in a city? And, and you know, you know, what are the intangible benefits? Does it unite the community? You know, tell me a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, Roman Mars, podcast host, 99% Invisible, has a great TED Talk in which he describes why city flags may be the worst design thing you never noticed. <laughs> and in that TED Talk, he describes the benefits of flags in sort of two ways. The benefits of flags for cities. One is outward looking. It's how the city represents itself to the outside world. Call it branding. And there's inside how the city represents itself to its own residents. That's civic pride, that's community cohesion. And flags accomplish both of those purposes most successfully when they are well-designed. In fact, Roman Mars asserts that there's a positive feedback loop 
between having a great city flag design and feeling good about the city. He uses Chicago as an example of a city with a great flag that's seen everywhere. And he asserts that that might make people feel even better about Chicago, that they live in a place with such a great flag design, that it creates community cohesion. I also was curious, your thoughts on the state flag, on the Nevada state flag. Nevada state flag is a challenge because it's part of a group of a large number of state flags that are indistinguishable at a distance. The primary initial function of a flag is identification and recognizability at a distance. It's not only at a distance, it's on a piece of fabric that's flapping and you're seeing it on both sides. Under those circumstances, only very simple flag designs work. And flags that look very similar to another flag at a distance have failed in their purpose of distinguishing what they represent. There's an ancillary purpose to a flag, and that is to be a ceremonial object or an object of reverence that encapsulates the history, the heritage, the culture of a place. It hangs in the regimental chapel or in the city council chambers, but that's a secondary purpose. Nevada's flag is what we call an SOB, a seal on a bed sheet. <laughs> and there are 24 U.S. state flags that put a seal on a blue background. And at a distance, you can't make them out. You can't distinguish them. Now, some states have solved that. For example, Montana, it writes the name of its state on the flag. Yeah. So, you know, it's Montana. I like to say, if you have to write the name of your state on your flag, then your symbolism has failed. Can you imagine writing France on the flag of France? <laughs> we laugh at that. Yeah. We should be laughing at states to do it. And indeed, if you'll see the Montana flag flying the other way, it says Anitnam on it. <laughs> 24 states, seal on a blue background. Nevada's is even worse because the seal is a small little thing up in the upper left-hand corner. So it's just mostly a blue field. Now, it may indeed fulfill that secondary purpose of encapsulating the history and heritage and culture of Nevada, but it completely fails as a signaling device. So Nevada has an opportunity, like its neighbor Utah, to design a new flag. In fact, Utah is close to the finish line of adopting a new flag after a full year's process. Well, and you know, once they, uh, when, if, if, and when they do, we can start looking over there, looking over the fence and th thinking, Hey, they might have a better flag than us. And then maybe we'll, <laughs> it'll encourage, uh, the state to, uh, rethink it. Indeed. As well. Now Utah, if you look in the South at the four corners, the three other states of the four corners have fantastic state flags, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico have very, very simple, iconic, recognizable designs. And Utah's this, this distant blue with a seal on it that you can't make out. There are people in Utah who've made the case for change by showing the flags from the four corners. Notice they didn't show the flag of Nevada because both of them are seals on a blue bed sheet. <laughs> Those SOBs, right? So I'm curious, what makes a good flag then? Like you said, distance is a big one, recognizability, right? But what else makes a good flag? Well, a way to accomplish that for a flag, I 
have distilled the wisdom of 20 different people who've written on flag design into five basic principles. And the five principles of flag design is I've put them in a small guidebook called Good Flag, Bad Flag, are simplicity, meaningful symbolism, few colors, no lettering or seals, and distinctiveness. So if a flag is simple, so simple that a child can draw from memory, and it has meaningful symbolism, either the objects or how the field is divided or what the colors mean. If it has few colors, two to three at, at the most, usually, that are, are the standard colors that flag fabrics are made from, that it doesn't have lettering or seals, and it doesn't look just like somebody else's flag, then that's going to be a successful design. There can also be flags that people love that are unsuccessful designs, but they're successful as flags because the people love them. Yeah. So we're not trying to tell people your flag is bad. We're trying to say your design is ineffective at distance signaling. Well, I guess I'll talk a little bit about the symbolism of the Reno flag because I actually think I, I know it real quick and I just so Please listeners do. know. But so we've got the mountains, obviously lots of mountains here in Reno. If you look out your window anywhere, you're going to see a mountain. We're in a basin I and mean, we have pretty amazing sunsets. So I think that's how we have these golden, this golden top part with the mountains. And then the middle blue band is supposed to represent the Truckee River, which runs straight through town. And then the bottom silver band is because we're the silver state and there's lots of silver mining that used to happen here. So I think that kind of is... The, the culmination and the, the, the meaning behind a lot of what's on our flag, which I think is, is really cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And before we read you the credits, like usual, we wanted to let you know that we will make a few changes to the show come March. And don't worry, we aren't going anywhere, and we're still going to bring you your weekly content, but we wanted to try mixing things up a little bit so that you, the audience, can be better informed and entertained. So keep an ear out for that next month. Now, on with the credits. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells, Tim Leonard, and Tom Tate. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Whoa. I think I cut my tongue. Good for you. Mm, all right. Uh... <laughs> <laughs>